This is a Triple J podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. Have you been sharing a lot of information on the Gaza-Israel war on your socials? If you haven't, I'm sure you've been seeing a lot. How do you know if what you're seeing is actually fact before you share it? Like, how do you make sure that your well-intentioned post isn't actually adding to the misinformation and disinformation war? We're getting into this really interesting issue today, a massive problem, not just for everyday people, but the world's biggest news organisations are grappling with this as well. Later, you're going to hear how dozens of US states are taking the owners of Instagram to court for damaging the mental health of young people. First, though. Hack. What could a ground land operation look like? On Triple J. Let's check in with what is happening in Gaza because we know the humanitarian situation is so bad. The UN has warned that fuel is going to run out over the next few hours there. That's really going to restrict what hospitals can do. The death toll keeps rising. And we're still hearing warnings of an Israeli ground invasion of Gaza. It's been more than two weeks since Hamas's brutal attack in Israel and Israeli officials have been warning they're going into Gaza sending tens of thousands of troops to the border, tanks, all kinds of other stuff. So when is this ground invasion happening? Why hasn't happened yet? And what is it going to look like? Let's ask an expert. Javed Ali is a former counterterrorism official with the FBI. He's now with the University of Michigan and he's with us right now. G'day, Javed. Thanks for coming on Hack. Dave, thanks for having me. When can we expect a ground invasion in Gaza? Because we've been hearing about it for weeks, but when is it likely to happen? Yeah, this is a great question. And on the one hand, there has been what I would call the political rhetoric from Prime Minister Netanyahu and other senior officials around him that have said that Israel's goal is to destroy and crush Hamas and other iterations of that. But beyond the rhetoric, in looking at other historical episodes of other full-scale military mobilizations, whether it was the U.S. in 1990, 1991, or even the U.S. mobilization and the coalition mobilization of forces around Iraq in 2000 into 2003, the Russian mobilization um, near Ukraine in 2022. In every one of those episodes, ground combat eventually happened within a span of weeks. So I am surprised that Israel hasn't started the ground campaign yet, but there are also other complicating factors. So that might be the reason why the ground campaign hasn't hasn't been initiated. Can you explain to us what this may look like? Because, you know, we're seeing tanks line up, we're seeing Israel get prepared, but what can we expect to see out of a ground invasion in terms of the fighting? Yeah, this is not traditional fight between the Israel, a very powerful Israeli military and another conventional army. So this will resemble conflicts, I believe, the U.S. and or U.S. partners then fought in places like Iraq and Syria in the post 9-11 era. So I suspect that whenever the Israeli ground campaign begins, it will resemble something at the scale of a Fallujah or a, a Mosul or a Raqqa, but probably even more intense because the physical environment of Gaza is smaller. Already it's been so heavily damaged by Israeli airstrikes, and then you're going to have thousands, tens of thousands of Israeli troops probably trying to fight thousands, if not more, Hamas fighters who are dug in or dug in above ground or perhaps um, some component underground. And I don't think we've ever seen a, a fight 
where the opposition force is underground. This would be new in the annals of of modern warfare. And I imagine civilian casualties are expected to be very high. Well, they're already, tragically, they've been high in Gaza just through the air campaign. And however many civilians remain in in Gaza, whether they they physically can't get out or have been told not to get out or they literally just don't want to leave. And that happened in all these other places I talked about the past 20 years, you know, some combination of those factors that they also will unfortunately be caught in the crossfire. And the numbers that we've seen over the past couple of weeks may may rise exponentially on the civilian casualty side. It's very difficult to declare a winner. Do you think, in your opinion, it's unlikely that Israel's intended goal of crushing and destroying Hamas will be achieved with this invasion? Yeah, I mean, if that is if that is the political goal, to crush and destroy Hamas, does what does that mean? Does that mean literally killing or capturing every single per every single Hamas fighter or official or leader who remains in Gaza? I mean, is that the metric of Israeli victory? In addition to anyone who's killed, what do you do with people who surrender or captured? Is Israel prepared to confront the reality of thousands of, of captured Hamas fighters. I mean, the U.S. had to deal with this and the coalition had to deal with this in both Iraq and Afghanistan. And I think we weren't at the time prepared to to deal with those um, numbers. And then the same thing happened later with ISIS. Um, So all these unintended consequences that will probably happen as a result of whatever the, the initial objectives are. And another military adage that has proven true time and time again is that no plan survives contact with reality. And I don't mean that to sound glib, but it's it's the reality that these are dynamic environments where you know one small thing can lead to five other things turning in a comp- totally different direction. So even if Israel thinks they have a plan that they can execute and will achieve all these objectives, it's so difficult to know whether you'll be able to do that. In the annals of, of terrorism, anyways, it, it's proven to be very difficult to militarily defeat terrorist groups, even whether big ones like Hamas or much smaller ones like Al-Qaeda. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with Javed Ali from the University of Michigan about the possible ground invasion of Gaza that's expected and what we could see out of that invasion. Javed, what kind of tactics will be used and how will they differ from side to side? Because I imagine the fighting that will be carried out by the Israeli Defence Forces may be very different to how Hamas will be fighting. Right. So we've seen uh, this mass mobilisation of of tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Israeli troops. I mean, they've got their main regular sort of fighting component, but now hundreds of thousands of reservists have been called up and they're arrayed around Gaza in these different locations in in armored vehicles and in tanks and the Gaza strip is not that big it's 25 miles long 3 to 7 miles wide depending on you know, where you are think of the physics aspect of this you know that many troops with that much equipment arrayed around such a small location are they all going to go in simultaneously and just try to overwhelm these different Hamas positions or wherever Israel thinks these Hamas positions are. And on the flip side, I would have to think Hamas is going to use the same insurgent playbook that we saw Al-Qaeda in Iraq use and then ISIS use. And those tactics are brutal. I mean, it's 
suicide bombers, it's roadside bombs, it's booby trap devices, it's uh, mobile attack teams with rocket-propelled grenades, it's snipers who are barricaded in these bombed-out buildings. And then the other complicating factor with Hamas that, again, we haven't really seen in, in modern warfare are not only the tunnels that we've talked about already or the tunnel networks, but now the hostages, up to 200-plus hostages still in Hamas captivity and are they in these locations in gaza where hamas thinks israel will most likely strike and so they're being used more as human shields i think the hostage recovery part of this is going to complicate the other military objectives with israel and the fact that you have the tunnel network too is just adding another layer of complexity to what is already a very very complex battle space the other thing is that the world is watching this very closely, and I wonder what kind of impact you think that will have on how this plays out from both sides. Like, can we expect once an invasion happens for Hamas to get additional support from other countries or allies? Yeah, that's, that's another thing I've been trying to think about. They have nowhere else to go. There's no fallback position for Hamas. This is their home territory in the Gaza Strip. So are they willing to literally sacrifice every single person under arms in order to confront you know, Israel on, on their turf? I mean, that is certainly a, a possibility. And you know, if, if that's the case, you know, what is that what does that do to global opinion? And on the flip side, if the civilian casualties are even significantly higher than they are now in the Gaza Strip, does that turn the tide from a public sentiment standpoint against Israel, even if militarily they're achieving their objectives to crush and destroy Hamas? So I think public opinion is going to shape some aspect of the conflict. But Israel seems intent on on going through with this because you hear the, the statements from the political leaders is that if we don't destroy Hamas now and whatever that means, all it means is that we're just going to get attacked again. And Java, do you have any thoughts on how long you think this might go on for in terms of the in, the ground invasion itself, when we could see it end? And the last major Israeli ground operation into Gaza was uh, late 2008 into early 2008. 19 and and it lasted about three weeks but the goals i think were more limited the scope was limited it, but the scale of of what israel has amassed now seems different and again the objectives seem very different this could likewise go on for several months but each day it goes on i just think it's going to be more ferocious and there will be more you know the casualties will just mount on on every side both the combatants and the civilians. And, th and that's where the public opinion might start to come into play to, to get some kind of ceasefire or have diplomacy work. Javed Ali from the University of Michigan, a former US government intelligence and counterterrorism official. Thank you for joining us on Hack. Absolutely, Dave. Thank you for having me. Well, turning from what's happening in Gaza to what's happening on your social feed, because you open Instagram, TikTok, you see something that maybe says an Israeli airstrike has hit a hospital in Gaza. But then, not long after you see that, you see another post saying a Palestinian group was responsible. So which one is it? A lot of us were asking that question last week. And as the situation escalates, this war continues. How do we separate facts from misinformation, disinformation, propaganda? And what about the news? How are we verifying what we report? 
Ellie Grounds has been looking into it. They've served big stars and now they're serving their country. One of Taylor Swift's security guards is in his IDF era. Bear with us, this isn't a story about Taylor Swift. It is about the Israel Gaza war. But this is actually a perfect example of how quickly misinformation during this conflict can take hold on the internet and spread. The background is this. An Israeli newspaper reported one of Taylor Swift's bodyguards was returning to Israel to fight with the Israel Defence Force against Hamas. The Israeli government's official account on X, formerly known as Twitter, then posted about it. What happened after that then became very confusing because the platform X has this thing called community notes, which is currently using to try and prove whether something is real or not real. But these are written by people, average people. This is Charlotte Ma. She's the social media editor with a collective of open source researchers called Bellingcat. They're basically internet detectives. We investigate cases with open source information. So that could be the viral videos that you see on your social media accounts. We take those of a certain current event and we analyze them and reveal the hidden secrets behind those. Um, So for example, who first posted them? What is it actually showing despite what it claims? A lot of what they do is trying to verify war footage. But when a community note appeared on that X post saying the guy wasn't actually Taylor Swift's personal bodyguard, just security employed by one of the very many stadiums she's performed at this year, Bellingcat went all in. So then we went through, I think, 12 months or seven months of footage uh, of Taylor Swift, and we found that he has appeared multiple times over the last two years next to Taylor Swift at the MTV Awards, for example, Music Awards. The community net was claiming he was part of event staff at one particular venue, and that was completely incorrect, um, misleading, um, and was attached to the Israel government's tweet. False content can be spread during a conflict in so many ways, like through doctored footage, deep fakes, videos with false translations, realistic footage from video games and photos or videos from other wars. I would say the most traumatic uh, footage that isn't from the conflict that is circulating is a video of a very uh, young girl being burnt alive. And that is from Guatemala in 2015. And it's a real footage. Um, And we see it often popping up when big crises happen. So how does verifying something actually work? My name is Kevin Ewan. I am an investigative reporter and digital forensics reporter uh, for the ABC. Kevin's job is basically internet. I ask myself, from the physical evidence that I see, where can I say that this is? Is there any way I can determine when this happened? And what can I say about the people who were there, including the person who filmed it? I am looking at people uh, who are being pulled from the rubble in Ukraine, and I say, looking at the back of the buildings in the background, um, looking at billboards, looking at timestamps and dash cams, I'm able to say with an extremely high sense of confidence that this happened here at this time. When it comes to the Israel-Gaza war, one of the biggest missions so far for researchers and journalists has been trying to determine what actually happened at the Al-Ali Arab Hospital in Gaza City and 
who was responsible for it. People are still reeling there in the aftermath of what's believed to be an Israeli airstrike on a hospital. The Israeli army says there was a failed rocket launch by the Palestinian militant group Islamic Jihad. The first vision of it came from a live stream on Al Jazeera, which was timestamped to be around 7pm local time. At the same time, there was CCTV footage showing the same explosion from different locations. It was uh, confirmed, effectively, because we have multiple live streams showing the same event at the same location. Now, to determine the location, what we did was we looked at the surrounding buildings. So that particular hospital, or the buildings next to it at least, has some pretty distinct solar panels on it that we could actually see in the light of the explosion. Um, so we were able to confirm a location based off that. Where it got really, really tricky was actually who was affected and who was responsible. The point of all this is not always to come up with a definitive answer, but instead to make it clear to the audience what has been independently verified and what we still don't know. Charlotte says there is some basic fact-checking that we can all do every time we open our feeds or news apps. If the source is not listed, big alarm bells. Take note of the surroundings or signage in the video or photo and compare it to where and when it's claiming to be from. If there's snow on the ground and it's saying it's from summer, probably not from summer. If it's been manipulated, you can tell by the shape of people's uh, heads or the sound of people's voices in the video. The edges might break at times or the front object doesn't quite match with the surroundings. And her last tip is to just upload a screenshot of the video to Google Lens using the little camera symbol at the end of the search bar. You upload that frame, often it will show you if that video has appeared somewhere else before. Kevin's advice is to have a healthy dose of scepticism. The only thing you can do initially is to reserve judgment on anything. And it's a really big ask, given the stakes of the situation, that a lot of people are dying in quite horrific conditions. Hack on Triple J. Ellie Grounds with that report. Messages coming through on the text line. Someone says, it's like the old saying goes, truth is the first casualty of war. Another person says, I feel like so many people are only new to deciphering propaganda. Um, take every claim with a grain of salt. It's interesting, isn't it? I want to find out more about how this war is playing out online and the role of digital activism which you might have heard of. Kelly Lewis is a digital media expert at Monash University and she's with us now. G'day, Kelly. Thanks for coming on Hack. Thanks very much for having me, Dave. How are you going today? Yeah, I'm well, thank you. It's fascinating talking about what we're seeing in Gaza and the way it's impacting everyday people. Like, we've just been hearing about the huge challenge for the media, but also everyone else to verify information in a time of war. There's so much unverified stuff flying around. In terms of digital activism, have you noticed a difference in the way that young people in particular are engaging with this conflict? Yeah, look, I think um, there's been a growing kind of chorus of support behind, certainly behind the kind of pro-Palestinian movement for many years. So I think it's always helpful to situate these events in context and, and not look at them just solely in, in kind of context of what it's happening just now, but in a historic context. So, you know, I think also taking back and understanding the role of digital activism as it's kind of emerged, we've really seen a, a generation grow up with those changes in technology as well, right? So we've, we've got a, a much savvy 
savvier, much more engaged kind of youthful population who, who are very connected to a range of issues. We are seeing people really re-engage with politics across the board and that's, you know, from a whole range of um, human rights kind of violations. We've obviously seen a lot of groundwork done through the Black Lives Matter movement. We've seen the rise of Me Too movements and feminist movements across the world as well as climate issue justice. So I think younger people are generally really engaged with this. Does digital activism achieve much? Because there would be people listening now thinking, oh, if I share a post or call out someone or something online, it's not doing anything. It might be making me feel better, but maybe it's not achieving that much. Is that accurate? Yeah, look, I think it's really complicated. I think, you know, we've obviously seen a lot of commentary um, and, and research that's been done in the past that's talked about the idea of this kind of slacktivism, right? Like that it's kind of this armchair activism. And so, look, while there are those elements of activism that may not um, be considered as fruitful, that's certainly really not the way to understand what digital activism does and why it's important. And we have seen certainly very impactful aspects come out through digital activism, the coming together of people who join kind of a chorus of a protest action. We know that that can lead to shifts in public opinion formation and that can obviously put a lot of pressure onto political actors and governments. And we know that governments respond to these things. And it's not the way it was in the early days of social media where governments didn't take a lot of notice of, of social media activity. We're in a very different era now and we understand governments have to respond to the citizenry. And this is one of the biggest kind of platforms that citizens have to engage in debates that matter to them. I wonder how much celebrity culture plays into this as well. Like people seeing a big name, someone they follow, posting something and also wanting to get involved and, and jumping on. Absolutely. We we continuously in, in conflict after conflict, you know, influencers and celebrities taking to social media to, you know, to express their own opinions or views on things. And again, you know, this, this can have disastrous consequences because we know that they do have a large mouthpiece. We do know that they have a large following base. And quite often we see uh, a number of well-known people saying things that are just flat out not true, this can have really disastrous consequences. So it not only leads to uninformed citizenry opinions, but it can directly implicate offline violence. And we've seen this happen time and time again in numerous contexts. So we have to be really careful. And I think it really helps to be vigilant about, you know, your own views and your own image, knowledge biases and limitations here and really just question, okay, this is someone that I go to on a number of, you know, points for, for information or sources, but maybe just let me check, is what they're saying actually true? Could there be other narratives that are being presented that, that kind of counter what they're saying? And I think, you know, it, in an era where the digital enables us to access information and spread information so quickly, we really need to just learn to take a pause, get kind of a good gripping on our emotions too, and just try and be a bit more reflective and ask those really critical questions around the sources and the information. And, and also question language, like language is inherently political. And it's really important to pay close attention to the way that different people or news organisations use different language to articulate points, because that's a very strategic way of, again, shaping public opinion and influencing things. Very good advice there. Kelly Lewis from Monash University, thank you very much for coming on Hack. No problem. Thanks very much for having me.
And on the text line, someone says, it is scary to think how much harder AI and technology manipulating photos, images, videos, even sound is going to make deciphering propaganda and misinformation. They're big issues and we'll be hearing more about them in the weeks and months ahead. Time to move on. Hack. California and dozens of other states say Facebook and Instagram are harming the mental health of young people across the country. On Triple J. We've known for years how spending time on social media can affect your mental health and your relationship with your body. And there's always a big chat about what is being done about that, what governments are doing, what the platforms themselves are doing. But some interesting news out today, 33 states in the US are taking action against Meta the parent company of Instagram and Facebook. They're taking Meta to court. They're saying that the company misled the public about the risks of using social media and it's contributing to a mental health crisis among young people. This lawsuit is saying Meta didn't disclose that its algorithms were designed to capitalise on young users' dopamine responses. Meta's saying it's already introduced tools to support teens and their families. It's disappointed with the lawsuit. So what is all this actually going to mean? What kind of precedent could it set? I want to chat to someone who sees the impact of social media firsthand with young people. Dr. Ben Buchanan is a psychologist and a body dysmorphia expert. He's with me now. G'day, Dr. Ben. Thanks for coming on Hack. It's a pleasure. Are you surprised by this massive US court case against Meta? Well, I think it's been rumbling for a while. Certainly in, in 2021, um, there was some documents leaked where they found that internal researchers at Meta knew that the uh, platforms were causing harm to teenagers. And th- those reports from those internal researchers were leaked. Um, and so it's not that um, certainly Meta won't be surprised because they had the research. And I suppose the the um, law... Um, The lawsuit is now saying that they didn't do enough in response to the knowledge that they had. What do you think about the mental, physical, psychological impacts that social media can have on young people? Because I guess different people dispute just how serious they are. What do you see as a professional? So I work with people with body image disturbances. And one of the, the clearest findings from the research on social media is that particularly among young women, um, it has a really uh, toxic, it can have a toxic effect on their body image. And in extreme cases, it can exacerbate eating disorders and body dysmorphic disorder, which is a mental disorder characterized by an obsessive preoccupation with appearance where you might compulsively compare yourself to other people. And so that's certainly one of the most established findings um, in, in body image. But we know more broadly that um, from correlational research that the longer one uses social media, um, the less satisfied with life people are. And so I think that you know the the research has been um, uh, mounting for years and years, probably over a decade now. And so we're pretty confident that um, social media can be harmful to particularly vulnerable people. Do you think in the wake of this court case, I guess we'll see how it plays out, what exactly will be presented as evidence or the rest of it. Do you think that governments here in Australia, though, need to be doing more to hold platforms accountable? Well, I think for very large platforms, there will be standards that um, get put in place. And I think it's an interesting um, 
idea about whose responsibility it is to have to um, interact with social media well. Is it the individual's responsibility? If they're a young person, is it their parents? Is it the the platforms themselves? Is it their responsibility to, to police healthy use? Or in this case, is it the government? And I think that really it's going to be everyone. The government's going to be involved. Individuals certainly need to take personal responsibility, particularly adults, maybe maybe young people um, uh, maybe can't take the responsibility that adults can. Um, and platforms, I think, well, I think that this lawsuit is a rebuke of platforms saying that they haven't been taking responsibility and so the government's got to step in. Look, there's definitely a, a mixed opinion on the text line right now. Somebody says, you know, people need to take some uh, accountability, uh, stop blaming social media for everything. Another person, though, says I had to deactivate my Instagram, Snapchat during uh, lockdowns, just stuck on X where I could tailor my fa- feeds to specifically what I wanted to see. I guess there also probably needs to be a lot more research into this, Dr. Ben, into, into the impacts. Yeah, so there's been lots of correlational research. And so um, the data seems to suggest that the more social media one uses, um, the less happy one is. But but also um, the same research shows that if you completely um, get off social media and detox and, and use it for zero hours a week, um, that that's not good either because social media is a part of our way of social communication. I think the real problem is that Social media gives us the false sense of connection. And us humans, we are, you know, really driven by connection and we we yearn for it, we want it. And then social media is just like junk food for the brain. It gives us that hit, that dopamine response, but without the actual nutritional um nutritional value or the the real um the real connection that we um need as human beings. And so I think it's just um, feeding us a, a false sense of connection where what we really need is real connection. Yeah, it's uh, really interesting. That's a really interesting analogy as well. Psychologist Dr. Ben Buchanan, appreciate your insight into this. Thank you very much for joining us on Hack. That's a pleasure. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time. Hack on Triple Jack.